place it comfortably. Title of today's talk is The True Nature of Suffering. As you all know, the Buddhist word is um, dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. Um, but a lot of people say, who are scholars, that really the, the more accurate translation of the word dukkha is dissatisfaction. And uh, if we look at it in a, in a medical sense, you could say that um, suffering is the sort of uh, acute end of dissatisfaction. <clears throat> but the word dissatisfaction itself implies something which is more chronic. And sometimes that dissatisfaction can be an ongoing sort of like chronic experience, long-going experience through our life and occasionally it becomes very acute as well when we we meet unfavourable circumstances in our life. And um, as I've referred to in previous talks, um, <clears throat> um, they believe that the, the word dukkha uh, originally meant it was an onomatopoeic sound that, that described the sound of a, a wheel not running free on an axle. So it's very, very clunky um, and creates a very, very difficult ride rather than a smooth ride through life. But when we look at what the true nature of suffering is, first of all, often the Four Noble Truths, or the First Noble Truths, is translated as life is suffering. I don't think that's what was intended by it, quite frankly. And other Buddhist monks like Thich Nhat Hanh have said the same. It's not life is suffering, it's there is suffering. That's very different from saying life is suffering. Life is just life. You know, we get sick, we grow, we die, new forms of life come in. Um, that's just the way things are. Uh -huh. um, and one thing that was confusing to me years ago, which Thich Nhat Hanh clarified, is we often hear in Buddhism about the three marks of existence, suffering, um, that the suffering, um, transience, impermanence, transience and emptiness. And it always confused me because the Four Noble Truths said that there's a, a way out of suffering. Mm -hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh clarifies that originally there was, there was two marks of existence, right? Emptiness and transience. And if you're not one with emptiness and transience, then your life will suffer. Mm -hmm. But if you accept, if you're not a, attaching to anything in life, so you, you're experiencing and you're one with the transience of life and you're one with emptiness, meaning that sort of don't know mind experience of the world before thoughts and judgments arise that dice it and slice it into good and bad, that don't know mind, that non-conceptual mind, when, when we experience life primarily from that don't know mind before we judge as good or bad, and we're not attaching to life, then we don't suffer in the Buddhist sense of the word suffering. So when we experience just the suchness of, of life as it is, before we start to think about it, um, 
then you, you couldn't actually call it suffering in the, in, the, in, the, in the Buddhist sense of the word. Now, just to remind you, I'm sure if you are familiar with um, the Buddha's teachings of the second arrow, but let me bring it up again because it's just a, such a good teaching. Um, the Buddha once asked a student, if a person is struck by an arrow, is it painful? The student replied, it is. The Buddha then asked, if a person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? The student replied, it is. The Buddha then explained, in life, we cannot always control the first arrow. However, the second arrow is our reaction to the first. And with the second arrow comes the possibility of choice. And uh, it reminds me, years ago, I remember it was either a a T-shirt or it was a bumper sticker that said, suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And that is the whole essence of the Buddha's teaching and Zen teaching that comes from there. Otherwise, what would be the point of doing this? Mm -hmm. Is that, that suffering or dissatisfaction in its chronic sense is optional. We don't have to suffer. Mm -hmm. Of course, we need to make a distinction between pain and suffering. You know, there is the first arrow of pain. Do you know if, um, if, say, I got COVID-19, right, and I had all of those symptoms? Mm -hmm. Um, There's pain. And there's also emotional pain, you know, when relationships break up or don't go well, things like that. Um, that is, that's the first arrow. Um, but all of the beliefs and thinking and so on that we add on top of it um, actually uh, create psychological suffering in our life. Now, I want to make a distinction between... I think it's important to make a distinction between... Um, Buddhist psychology and the teachings of the Buddha, like the Four Noble Truths. And when we tend to make hybrids out of Buddhism and particularly psychology, um, and we're actually trying to say it's Buddhism when in fact it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, If you read a lot of Dharma self-help books, and I'm, I know some of these may be favourite authors of you, but I'm going to challenge some of their views. Um, favourite Dharma self-help books like Tara Brack, um, around Radical Acceptance, and um, Kristen Neff, around self-compassion, seem to do a version of Buddhism which seems to imply that the cause of suffering is low self-worth. You know, that we feel badly about ourselves or we judge ourselves in a, in a very negative kind of way and judge ourselves to be inferior from others. And if we can come to be compassionate towards ourselves around that or deal with our low self-worth, then, then that will be transformative. Well, that, that's one way it could be. Um, but the problem with the Tara Brax and the, the Kristen Neves is that they're psychologists, right? just like me. 
And if you've got a training in psychology, you seem to see the world from a psychological point of view. That's the lens that you look through, and that's the lens that you look through to understand Buddhism. And of course, I, I do that as well. But I think it's important that we don't go down that pathway in fully understanding what the causes of suffering are. The Buddha didn't say the cause of suffering is low self-worth. The Buddha said the cause of suffering is grasping, aversion and apathy, greed, hatred and ignorance. And they are not just psychological words, they are ethical words. They are words that imply not just the harm that we do to ourselves, but the harm that we do to others. And I think that a, a true Dharma integrates both of those aspects, not just one of them. But a lot of self-help Dharma books, particularly coming out of America, uh, they sell well because they appeal to a narcissistic culture. You know, self-compassion, you know, um, the harm that I do to me. But when we look at that purification sutra that we do as our first sutra like this morning, it's kind of like that's, that's the first gate we've got to go through into Dharma practice. Yeah, it's, it's fine to see, and it's true, the harm we do to ourselves. Um, but it's a lot harder to look at the harm that we do to others as well. Mm -hmm. And so, in terms of dealing with suffering, um, it would also be a, an incorrect interpretation of the Dharma that you've just got to accept it and just got to suck it up. You know, that's the way life is. Um, it means, it doesn't mean doing nothing. It means the difference between what Joko, my teacher, said was the difference between reacting and responding. Um, reacting is just a very emotive, knee-jerk response before we pause and we open up into spaciousness. But responding means doing something constructive, right? If I've got a sore throat, I don't just accept I've got a sore throat. I go to the doctor to try and find out what the cause is, right, and get a treatment that might help it. It doesn't simply mean this kind of um, stoic just acceptance of what is, but it's doing it with some kind of skillful way Know, and, and in a wise way. Of course, it goes without saying, too, um, that tapping into our wisdom to respond uh, rather than just being reactive is all based on patience. Uh, and I, someone told me Norman Fisher's latest Zen book is about patience, that patience is at the core of what we do. Patience is what gives us the, that ability to pause and to stop and to consider and reflect before we and get out of that knee-jerk reaction to life into something which is actually constructive. And, it, and again, to go back to the sutras and Hakuin's sutra about all of those parameters that arise out of sazen, generosity, etc. The most obvious one, they're all obvious, but the most obvious one 
that comes out of what we do today is patience. Mm. Reflect on it. Zazen itself is an act of patience. Mm. Just to sit there without, you know, half an hour after half an hour, uh, not being bored or irritated that the bell isn't ringing yet. Just to be present to what is. It's the very act of patience in itself. And if we bring that that quality into our everyday life, that's that's the essence that leads to that shift between reactivity and, and responsiveness. The psychological view or the, the Dharma psychological view of suffering um, is all based on the on on the view that we hold beliefs that in some way we're not as good as or that we're inferior. Mm-hmm. Again, it's true that that causes suffering. If we think that we're inferior, we're not recognising our, our true nature. We've divided it up into something which is bad. Very true. I see that all the time in my clinical work. The other side of it is that we also not only have can hold beliefs of being inferior, uh, we can also hold beliefs of being superior. Mm-hmm. And when we hold beliefs of being superior, it leads to some kind of acting out of grasping and aversion and apathy um, that harms others. And the karma of that is that if we harm others, it comes back to harm ourselves in some way. It's not enough just to see the world through a psychological lens. It's also important that we see life through a political lens, a sociological lens, where we see, like in the daily news, you know, this, this fight for power that's going on all the time and the harm that it causes. And, you know, some of the the current issues that we see in contemporary life is how harm is called in the world through racial superiority, you know, and how harm is caused in the world through gender superiority, to name two. And another one, apart from those subdivisions within the human race, the, the larger, bigger issue is the way that human beings, all of us, seem to think that we're superior to nature or to other forms of life, and they're just all here so that we can live a good life. But if you look at it even that in that ecological frame, you know, being being superior to the rest of the lo- of life, we're just here to exploit it. It's just here for us to exploit. It ends up, the karma of it ends up boomeranging back on ourselves. Because if we have that superior belief, we can just see the way the world is now: global warming, bushfires, pollution, wildlife being destroyed every day. And it comes back to harm us, right? Because everything is interconnected with everything else. And we focus on not just the harm we do to ourselves, but the harm we do to others in a sociological sense, you know, to 
other ethnic groups or other people who are different to us in some kind of way, it comes back and it harms us as well. It reminds me of because, and it comes back to harm us as well, because we create then an emotionally polluted environment or a spiritually polluted environment where your way of life then is just survival and being better than others and, and it's game playing. You know, it's beating others. Life is just a game to win. It's not cooperative. And that's the realm um, that's described very, very clearly in the realm of the jealous gods, in the, the, six, the six realms of wheel, on the wheel of birth and death. The jealous gods think they're better than everyone else and just caught up in game playing and winning all the time, winning arguments, being better. They're jealous. Mm -hmm. And they're caught in that game forever. They're not, they're not enlightened. They're not awake. Um, even if they win, you know, even if they keep on winning, you know, they're creating a mindset of paranoia and distrust and fear of losing. They can never be at peace. So it's very important that when we look at the nature of suffering, apart from just looking at its true nature, that it's empty, that it's before judgment, you know, it's good or bad, it just is, pain just is, loss just is, and it's transient, it comes and goes. But the causes of it are not just low self-worth, it's not just psychological, it's not just about the harm being done to me. If we really understand the true nature of emptiness, that it really is the negative way of saying everything's interconnected, everything isn't sliced and diced, it's all part of a whole, then if we have that view of life, then it's equally important to see what we do that harms others or harms other forms of life that comes back and then harms ourselves in the process in a circular way. In other words, we, we need to hold both. We need to hold that, that psychological view of harm to me, but we also need to hold that ethical view of harm to others. And that's like why I keep saying over and over again, Dharma practice is not just about um, meditation. Um, it's also integrated into the practice of the precepts. You know? And it's also integrated into recognizing that there is no self. You know? That we're all interconnected and part of the whole. If we don't look after the whole, then we poison the part. 